0: This is the Decoding Obesity Podcast, where we simplify, demystify, and decode obesity, helping you lose weight and feel great. So gear up for a fascinating journey through this ever-evolving field, and let's see what we find. And please remember that the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info, and now, here's your host of the Decoding Obesity Podcast, Dr. Avishkar Sabarwal.
1: Hi friend, welcome to this episode of the Decoding Obesity Podcast. I'm very excited to announce the winner of the giveaway which we had last week and stay tuned through the episode so that you can know who won. You know, I have covered a lot of topics in adult obesity, but I really haven't talked much about pediatric obesity. And the reason for this is that I'm not a trained pediatrician or nor do I specialize in pediatric obesity. So I decided to do an episode on this, especially because it was pointed out to me that that's something that we should cover. I have with me a very special guest. She's a registered dietitian who's worked very closely with the pediatric population. And we're going to discuss how we can protect our children from developing disordered eating. Bear in mind, disordered eating is different from eating disorders. And we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of all of that. Now, Amelia Sherry is a registered and certified dietitian nutritionist who works primarily with children and parents who are struggling with issues related to weight, growth, diabetes, and especially parent-child feeding dynamics, which I certainly struggle with. So she has a New York-based private practice, but before this, she was actually working at Mount Sinai Medical Center very closely with the Department of Pediatric Endocrinology, where she was a clinical dietitian for over five years. And that's why I decided to bring her on, because she has so much experience working with the pediatric population. Now, she's a founder of Nourish Her, which is an online resource where she offers community education and support to mothers who are recovering from a history of chronic dieting and or disordered eating so that they can raise children who have happy, healthy relationships with food. Welcome, Amelia. How are you doing?
2: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me today.
1: Thank you so much for joining me. And, you know, thank you for agreeing to come on my show.
2: Yeah, I'm very excited to have this conversation. Thank you.
1: Likewise. You know, this is such an important topic and more than a year that I've had this podcast, I think I've just had one episode on dealing with pediatrics per se, because I'm not certified and I'm not a specialist in pediatrics. So let's just start by, you know, talking about how the quote unquote dieting landscape has changed over the years.
2: In general or amongst children?
1: I think let's start with, you know, how it's happened in general. And then we can just, especially because you've dealt with people of the younger age group, because honestly, I don't know. I have, my kids are very young, so I don't know what the adolescents are going through and if you can shed some light on that as well
2: sure i'd love to so over the most recent decades i think we've seen many what i like to call fad diets so many different styles of eating that are often used to control or to reduce weight and to help people to meet this thin ideal that is so out there and prevalent in culture So you guys have probably heard of all these very strange and unusual and often very promising sounding diets. Right now, we hear a lot about intermittent fasting, keto is a year or so back, paleo, Atkins, low-fat diet, all these sorts of different eating styles have been around. And they come and go. And I think that most recently, the way it's changed most recently is that there's a very strong emphasis on eating for health. And so eating for health is promoted. And it's a little more insidious, I think, because it still often requires eliminating food groups, there's stigma attached to certain foods, there's still a lot of rigidity to it, but it's all in the name of health. So the lines become a little more blurred. And that's how I think it starts to really enter into family life and family meals too. We might not be telling our children that they need to watch or manage their weight, but we may be telling them that they need to eat healthy. And that can very quickly, from my experience and perspective, go off the rails into being a little too rigid and something that is not healthy at all.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, even though we are kind of shifting towards eating healthy from the perception of being thin, which is a big shift in itself, I feel, you know, it's probably in the right direction, but I think even going in the right direction requires the right path. And that's where specialists like you come into play who can help us kind of understand how to do that. So how does this new normal, quote unquote, normal of these fat diets kind of precipitate these eating disorders? Or how have you seen that happen in your practice?
2: Well, fad diets, the, many of the ones that I just referred to, lend themselves to a lot of rigidity with eating, and that's exa- in total conflict with the way our bodies are meant to eat. We, I don't recommend eating according to a set of rules, but eating more in tune with your body's natural rhythms and hungers, appetites, things like that. So That's how they start to interfere by applying a lot of rules. Within homes and families, the idea of eating for health, which is a vague word and doesn't mean a lot, especially to children and especially very young children, it ends up putting a lot of pressure on the meal. So the parents coming in with a very good, with a very positive intention of wanting to protect their child from any type of harm. But they end up applying a lot of pressure to the meal and the choices and the amounts that their child is eating from meal to meal. And that is not the way food is meant to be experienced. It's supposed you you eat for pleasure. You need to enjoy your food. It needs to be satisfying, both filling, like physically, and also satisfying, meaning pleasing to your appetite. So when we come in with this goal of being healthy, and I'm using air quotes, we tend to interfere too much with our children's eating. And I can expand on that if you want a bit.
1: Sure, please, please.
2: Well, for example, when we, so what I see, some of the issues I see primarily are parents, for example, really want their children to eat vegetables because they understand that vegetables have a lot of vitamins and minerals. So they get very focused how much vegetables their children are eating, whether they're coming to them, meaning whether they're growing and learning to enjoy them quickly enough. And they become very anxious when their children aren't eating vegetables. And that actually has a negative impact on the child's eating because they can sense the pressure. And that is not how we come to learn to enjoy food when we're pressured to eat food. And we know from research that when we pressure children either very overtly and explicitly by making them eat something, or even more subtly by just saying, well, it's really healthy. You should. I spent a lot of time making it. X, Y, Z might happen to you if you don't eat it. Um, When we put pressure on eating, children eat those very same foods much less and much less enjoyably. And we even have research that shows over the course of their lifetime that they eat less of those specific foods, the same ones that their parents pressure them to eat. In childhood. So, even though parents are coming to the meal with good intention, they might not be getting the result that they want.
1: Interesting. Interesting. And have you seen these behaviors that parents actually perform precipitate somebody's eating disorders?
2: Yeah. So, I want to just make a distinction between a full blown, clinically acknowledged or diagnosed eating disorder and also what comes just before it, which is disordered eating. So, there's normal eating. There's disordered eating, and then there is an eating disorder. So disordered eating, we know in research, is a precursor to a full-blown eating disorder. So we see a lot of disordered eating in younger children and adolescents and teenagers. And unfortunately, parents can precipitate it, not to blame eating disorders on parents at all, and I'll explain more of that in a minute. But by, again, applying these rules, like you must eat X before you can eat Z, or you must eat this amount of protein before you're allowed to have more starch or rice, or you must eat everything on your plate before you can have dessert. That is actually disordered. It's a strong word to use there. But we need to eat more in tune with our actual hunger. Our, do we have enough room in our belly for it? Do we actually like the food? Because when we're pressured to eat a food we don't enjoy, it becomes a very negative experience. And a very simple concept is that I always tell parents, I, we want to build eating, what we call eating competence in research in your children. And the way we do that is we want to make sure when they come to the table that they feel very comfortable. They're not anxious. We want them to be calm. So we need to make sure the environment there is not one of pressure. Going back to your original question about the actual, like an eating disorder, we do see when some parents perceive their children to be gaining weight, whether it is their BMI percentile is actually going up or not, their perception is there. They t- tend to re- start to restrict foods on their child. And again, it might not be overtly. It may be like a subtle holding back. You may say something like, Oh, are you sure you really need seconds? Or, um, you might push or encourage the child to eat some of the lower calorie foods. And that restriction is leads to disordered behaviors with eating over time because you're eating out of tune with your actual natural hungers and desires.
1: That's very interesting, Amelia. You know, one question that really popped in my mind was, what's the science behind, you know, parents applying this pressure and causing the children to have disordered eating?
2: Mm-hmm. When parents interfere, well, I operate from a model that is designed by a researcher, a dietitian, and social worker named Ellen Satter. She is an expert in child feeding. And when we look at some of the research that she's done, we see that when parents overstep the line and interfere with how much or how little a child is eating, meaning they dictate and define how much or how little that that can lead to unhealthy eating behaviors in the child. Now, whether it's gonna to lead to a full-blown eating disorder, I would not go that far, but things become a little disordered. Also, the model defines feeding into responsibility. So the parent's responsible for deciding the what, meaning you're gonna decide which foods are on the table, the when and the where, and the child's gonna decide whether they wanna eat at all or not and how much or how little. So when the parent has concerns, possibly about the child's weight or maybe just a general health, and they overstep the line and start defining that for the child, restricting or even pushing in the case of lower weight children, pressuring them to eat more, the child becomes what we call dysregulated or detached from their internal regulation. And that can set off a cascade of other behaviors. So for example if your child's feeling restricted, they might feel what we call very disinhibited at a later meal when the parent's not there. And they may overeat to compensate for that lack or just the fear that they won't get enough at the next meal, or they won't get enough of a particular food that they really like. And that's how eating starts to become somewhat disordered. We also, you mentioned the fad diets at the beginning of the episode. Some adolescents may pick up on fad diets that they hear about in culture, like I mentioned intermittent fasting, skipping meals, which is a type of intermittent fasting, or limiting to certain food groups, for example, ostracizing or feeling fearful of carbohydrates, which is very popular right now in culture and, and has been now for some time, or not wanting to eat what some people refer to as junk food or packaged foods and fearing those foods. Those are types of disordered behaviors, and that is kind of a gateway that goes on. But you could see how those some of those behaviors, like skipping a meal or eliminating a whole food group, can also be something that's picked up a lot when we are very focused on weight and trying to, like, fad diets, basically, right? Or trying to eat in certain ways to manage our weight. So the line becomes blurred, and children can pick up on those things very quickly if their parents are following them or promoting them or using them themselves possibly to try to control their weight.
1: Interesting. So how can parents know if their kids are actually going towards disordered eating? Because like you mentioned that sometimes parents may actually be following the same diet pattern and it may not be very evident to them and may not be very evident to them that their kid is developing disordered eating.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And a lot of parents that come in to see me have a lot of notions about what is healthy and not healthy that we sort of need to unlearn. Um, before I give, I would love to share a few examples of what might parents can watch out for in terms of disordered eating in their children. But before I do that, I just want to be very clear that parents do not cause eating disorders in children. Eating disorders are a combination of genetics, temperament or personality, and environment. So the parent does weigh in on the environment a bit, but they uh, by do not cause eating disorders. And I don't want to make parents fearful of doing that. What they can do is try to make the environment, one, with the way they approach feeding in a way that protects them from disordered eating. I just wanted to be clear about that.
1: Yeah, I think you raise a very valid point here because... What we're talking about is disordered eating and not necessarily eating disorders, which themselves are a kind of a psychiatric disorder. And that's why I had, you know, two episodes on two specific eating disorders that we talked about. Having said that, you rightly mentioned that, you know, environment does play a role even on disorders. And we need to create an environment such that even if there is a propensity to getting these disorders, your children are kind of protected from getting or manifesting these disorders if we can try and change that so that's the whole idea of this podcast episode it's not to blame the parents in any which way i think parent tries to do the best they can with the best understanding that they have of the whole situation and that's why what i'm trying to do is get the science in to understand what we can do as parents for our children
2: Mm -hmm. yeah well, for sure, an action parents can take is to look more into the division responsibility and really, really focus on their responsibilities with eating, which is to provide an opportunity to eat at regular intervals throughout the day and to provide to the best of their ability based on their resources a balanced meal. And then to not overstep the boundary of what is the child's job there, which is that they define how much or how little and whether they'd like to eat at all. that can be very challenging in our current climate, especially if the parent has concerns, again, perceived or real, like with regard to the child's growth and their BMI changes, it can be hard to hold back and not step over that line. But becoming aware of the two responsibilities is the very first step. And it can be very protective from disordered or chaotic eating and raising children who are out of tune with their actual internal regulation, which is a very positive skill that we want children are born with and we want to continue to support. I just want to go back to your other question about signs that parents can watch out for in their children. Sure, yeah.
1: I think let's just talk about the signs that parents can watch out for and then it would probably be a good idea for us to talk about, you know, what parents can do to protect children from developing disordered eating.
2: Okay. Sure. So some things parents can watch out for are a lot of body dissatisfaction talk from their children. So their children being very focused on their looks. It might not even be their weight. Boys, for instance, are very focused on being more muscular. So if you hear a lot of talk about that, it might prick your ears to start noticing if there's been changes in their eating. A child's becoming more unwilling to come to the family table could be a sign. Uh, Skipping meals, saying they're too busy or they're not hungry can be a sign. Also, hiding food. So parents will tell me they'll find wrappers or they'll find out from someone else that their child's been eating X, Y, and Z when they're not with them can also be a sign. We know that whenever I have a parent that tells me that they're finding wrappers in their child's bedroom, I know immediately that, that is from research, we know it's usually a sign that the child's feeling restricted in some other area of their eating. So they are feeling disinhibited or have to go out of control or find things when they're not in the presence of the person who is restricting. Sometimes the restriction can be internalized. The parent might not even be overtly restricting. Um, the child may just feel pressure to restrict because of the culture that's out there. So that's also a sign. And I think that if you are, oh, if a child also is suddenly deciding not to eat a whole like food group that is a sign it's interesting and i think the first step is always to get curious i recommend just saying oh you know i noticed this why are you doing this you know where did you get that idea things like that just get curious don't make assumptions and leave the door open any information your child shares with you always be grateful thank you so much for telling me just to keep that door open with your child so they can share and of course consulting a registered dietitian, especially someone with pediatric experience, can be very supportive for you in understanding what may or may not be going on.
1: All right, it's time to announce the winner of the giveaway. First of all, I want to thank everyone who participated in this contest. And now the winner of this giveaway, who won the 30-piece sampler pack from Atlas Bars, is Sarah Eiflander. Congratulations, you will be receiving an email from me, Sarah, and also from Atlas Bars on how to get this. Well, fret not if you haven't won, because Atlas Bars was kind enough to actually offer a twenty percent discount on their sampler pack for all the people who haven't won but participated in this giveaway. All right, now getting back to the episode. So, what can parents do at home to prevent children from developing disordered eating?
2: That's a great question. So back again to not interfering with how much or how little your child wants to eat. As challenging as that might be, another is to avoid linking weight with eating. So avoid using terms around the table. Uh, let we should eat this because it helps us, so we won't gain weight, or we should eat this just it helps us stay. Even if you're just saying to stay a healthy weight, when we link weight with eating, things can get again, it puts pressure on the child's eating. And the truth is, and what I always share with families is that you cannot exert direct control over your body weight by changing something that you decide to eat or not eat at a meal. So we don't want to give our children that idea. And that can be really challenging for parents. But basically, I just say, leave weight off the table. Don't discuss it or link it to foods Talk about more of the benefits if you even need to. Only do it when it's necessary and appropriate. Don't go out of your way to talk about the benefits of foods. And or if you do bring it up, gauge or be responsive. Like, is your child actually interested and do they want to hear it? We don't want to force information on them because really, again, that's not how we enjoy food. We need to enjoy the process of it, but you can focus on. If they do have questions you can focus on it gives us energy it helps our you know fats are for our brain any basic kind of nutrition information that you know you can share just as long as it is not linked up with weight that can be very helpful also avoiding labeling foods good and bad junk and healthy because that attaches a lot of emotion to foods and children can you know just because I always like to say, just because you just told your child that their Reese's peanut butter cup is junk food or the potato chips, it doesn't make them not want to eat it anymore. In fact, what you're really doing is causing them probably a little conflict, right? Because they probably still want to eat it, it still tastes delicious, but now they feel a little shame about it, right? So, avoiding being very binary about foods, all food is very good. So, you don't want to say this is junk, this is healthy. Instead, be understanding that foods are more gray, everything has some kind of nutrition in it, being a little more open-minded about it can be helpful, too.
1: You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, and I'm just wondering, a lot of these foods are what we call hyperpalatable foods, right? They're going to hijack our brains to kind of want more of these foods, for example, the potato chips, the candies, whatever have you. So what do you really do? What do parents do to prevent, not prevent, just limit their children from actually consuming more of these? Because... If somebody's gonna be, at least that's the way I see it, if I'm gonna be open to letting my kids have it at free will, then I think they're probably gonna have it for every meal. So how do you prevent that from happening?
2: Well, I disagree that just because you allow your child to have certain foods that they're gonna want it at every meal. In fact, children are gonna be exposed to these foods once they are old enough to not be around you. So what we need to do is to teach them how to navigate them, how to enjoy them. And how to also enjoy other foods, you know, eaten in too much or too high of an amount of food become, you actually lose your appetite for it. So there is a huge fear that we can't allow our children or ourselves to be, to eat certain foods because we'll just go overboard. And I disagree with that. And the more restricted we have tried to be, or we've restricted our children, the more they will probably go overboard when we allow them freedom because they don't trust they're gonna get it again. It takes them a while to build up that trust that, yes, I can have as much as I want. No one's going to interfere. That you have to kind of prove to them and to yourself over and over. And over time, the, those foods become less palatable. Yes, fats are rewarding, sugar's rewarding, and that's biologically makes sense, especially for children. They need lots of calories, they're growing. So I consider that a positive that their body recognizes that. I could see you. (laughs) I'm challenging you. I know. I do have recommendations for how I recommend incorporating them into your family food, into your meals, to whatever extent you're comfortable with. I recommend full permission with certain foods at snack times, letting your child have as much, you know, rolling in some of, I forget the examples we use, but if it's chips or some chocolate, Rolling those into snack time, letting your child experiment. How much do they really need before they are not enjoying it anymore? Sometimes it might be a lot, but they really need to learn this information in their body themselves. We cannot tell them cognitively this is enough to eat and that is not. That is not positive way to experience food, and I think it does work against you over time. At dinner time, I don't recommend, and this, again, is all based on research from Ellen Satter Institute. Based on her research for dinner, we recommend limited amounts of those, like maybe a sweet or a dessert, because usually at dinner we have some of those higher nutrient foods. We want to make sure the child has enough room in their tummy to eat both. But snack time is a great time to experiment with some of those what you call highly palatable foods and just let your child experience it in their body and see how it feels to them over time. What do you think would be the alternative if we restrict? How do you think that works out over time?
1: No, I can only imagine parents really cringing at the thought of letting kids eat all the candy that they want. But I guess, you know, if it's backed by science, I'm not an expert at this. So, and that's why we have you here. So that's, it's great to know. It's very insightful. Certainly something to try. It's not, you know, can you can certainly try for a few days and see how it works. And I would encourage people to try that, you know, have an open mind towards this and maybe incorporating it and seeing how the kids react to it may be helpful.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say that this is called the trust model. There has to be a lot of trust between the parent has to trust the child that they will find their endpoint. point. And sometimes the parent doesn't even trust themselves. So this could be a challenge. And the child has to trust that the parent is not going to suddenly start to take it away or restrict. So it does need trust builds over time. So it will take time to build that trust with that food and that experiential learning from the child. This can be a challenge for many parents, depending on where they're at with their own eating. So right now, if you're hearing these ideas for the first time and you're cringing or feeling kind of triggered or uncomfortable, that is perfectly normal and I encourage you to keep an open mind and if it does interest you a little bit to you know you can reach out to me or ask. You could research a little on your own. You can look into the research on it. You can look into Ellen Satter's work. But I do believe in the model and I have seen it work over and over and over again with children and families. And it works in both ways. So children who are gaining or their BMI percentile is going up quite quickly all of a sudden And also children whose BMI percentile is dropping have a lot of the similar issues. Parents are either pressing for them to eat certain foods or restricting sometimes. So the alleviation of pressure in both senses can help to normalize eating. That was a lot, a big sentence there, but it has many benefits. That was my end point, basically.
1: Yeah, and it has a lot of pressure on the parents, I guess. (laughs)
2: I don't know if I characterize it as pressure. I think it's challenging in the culture we live within this very we call, you know, diet culture, health culture. There is a, the eating landscape, the diet, and I don't mean weight loss, but just the eating the eat diet in the sense of eating culture that's out there is one restriction, fear, avoidance. And so when we start talking about things like body trust permission, enjoyment, people get very uncomfortable with that. So it's a new concept. Yeah. And I guess, I don't know if parents would feel pressured, but definitely challenged, I'd say.
1: No, I think it's great that you're mentioning this because, you know, retrospectively, when I look at myself and my experiences, certainly my food choices have changed over time. And it kind of makes sense that food choices will change. And one thing that really stuck with me was the fact that you mentioned the way we experience food, not just eating, because it's an experiential process. And really, it has to be an enjoyable process. So, you know, pressuring somebody to do something or not do something will definitely have a detrimental effect on the whole experience of that food. And I certainly feel that, you know, it kind of makes sense at some level to not kind of really pressure people, because even the kids' food choices will change as we go along and as they kind of understand what they really need, their body really needs and doesn't need.
2: Mm-hmm. As long as we give them the opportunity. So that's where I think eating goes a little wrong with between parent and children. And I think that health, that pressure to be healthy is what interferes. So that we need to give the children opportunity to develop their eating skills over time with these repeated lots of trust and repeated experiential, like these experiences around food. And we have to be okay. Like for example, we started the conversation talking about vegetables. If your child isn't coming along and enjoying their vegetables as quickly as you might like, we don't want to rush in there and start pressuring, just like if they're not learning to walk as fast as you expected. We're much more accepting of children in those areas of learning to ride a bike, of learning to read. But with food, for some reason, we feel that we need to rush in there and start messing around with things. And that I don't recommend doing that at all, as hard as it is.
1: I think it instinctively comes to parents to kind of look out for the kids. And sometimes it may not be in the children's benefit is the way that I look at it. However counterintuitive it may sound, but I think I understand what where you're coming from, you know, not having the pressure on the kids because that helps them grow probably to be a better person. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Part I haven't mentioned at all is the, well, I did a little bit, but the parent does need to give the child opportunity to experience the food and over and over in a structured way, just like we would present them with a bike if it's bike riding or a book with it's reading. So we want to be positive and encouraging and present them with vegetables or different proteins or grains, um, different cultural foods. We need to do that consistently also to help them come along with it. We have, that's our job right? Like with the what of with the eating, we have to choose what we're going to do and we have to do it regularly. That's the when. And eating really is a body experience. That's why we don't want to try to talk our kids into eating things. We want to let them experience it, right? Just like walking or running. We can't really explain to them how to do it. We wouldn't even dream of doing that, right?
1: So if you want your kids to eat broccoli, you probably just give them more opportunities to eat broccoli. Is that what it is?
2: Exactly, exactly. And also in pleasurable ways. So ways that make it palatable, you know, fats are pleasurable. So adding, you know, using different recipes and things like that, if that makes it more appealing and easier for your child to taste, touch, think about, smell, all those things that come before eating, then absolutely you would, I would recommend doing that as well.
1: So, yeah, it's interesting because the way I'm understanding what you're saying, and this is new to me because honestly, I did not think of this. And I was actually mentally cringing when you mentioned, oh, let them eat the candy. I was like, this is not right. But I think it makes sense. So the way I look at it is, and correct me if I'm wrong, give them as much opportunity as possible with different ways of preparing the healthy foods. And if they still choose, say something unhealthy for that meal, that's still okay.
2: Yes, because we don't want them to come to the food or come to the broccoli or come to that experience of enjoying it under pressure or duress. We don't want it to be negative. We want them to learn to enjoy it on their own. But I mean, there's a lot more layers to this. We could talk about it, like how to actually put it into action. Having a balanced plate, always having at least one food on it that they can eat comfortably. It doesn't have to be something that makes you cringe, you know, all the time. We're going to mix it up and give different foods, you know, at different meals, to whatever extent we have them available to us. And sometimes, however many times a week it feels right to you, we're going to roll in some of those foods that we may feel less comfortable with to give them experience with it and to let them enjoy it. They are out there in the food culture and landscape. They do taste delicious. They can be enjoyed if we don't fear them. But yes, giving repeated opportunities to try things and in different ways and being okay with I use the word acceptance in my practice, but just being very accepting of where your child is. If you have more than one child, you might notice their temperaments are very different. And that relates to their food as well, right? They experience, some are very fearful of food. Some are more adventurous. Some are okay when you make a request to them to eat some and other ones get very upset about it. So we need to accept them, their skills and their temperament and how they're applying it to this thing that they're learning how to do.
1: That's very interesting. This is all new stuff that I'm learning today. (laughs) This is really cool. What are some of the examples that you've seen in your practice, especially, you know, at Mount Sinai, when you were working with pediatric endocrinologists to kind of help those families?
2: So what are some of the problems or issues that I see in parents that I used to see in Mount Sinai? So skipping meals, extremely, extremely common. Skipping breakfast because of time or because parents don't prioritize it. Or the children just waking up too late, which goes back to them not getting enough sleep, which interferes with much of our eating patterns and our appetite and our satiety. Lots of emphasis on weight. So parents are very focused on weight, weight, weight. Remember, I said we want to disassociate that. It's not productive, it's harmful. Even just talking about weight is linked with disordered eating habits in children and adults, probably. So, but parents will come in with that on their mind. Of course, in endocrinology, their weight has probably been changing at a rate that's not in line with their growth curve. So it's probably been brought up to them by their pediatrician or their pediatric endocrinologist. So a lot of focus on that, which I try to de-emphasize. We focus more on habits, what the things your children are doing, how active they are, whether having regular meals or skipping meals. Lots of children skip lunch as well. So I encourage parents to tune into that and find out what's going on. They're not providing lunch to their child. Ask, are they actually eating lunch at school? Let's see. Again, it doesn't seem relevant, but it's so relevant, which is this sleep habits. Many children, and especially during the pandemic, sleep got interfered with so much, right? There was no real reason to get up at a certain time. So kids are staying up late. But that in fa- impacts our eating quite significantly from my experience. So we focus on that often as well. That's one of those habits that we focus on.
1: That's certainly very helpful to know. Amelia, you know, going back to talking about incorporating these healthy habits, not only for the children, but also for the parents, what else can people do besides just, you know, not pressuring the kids? How do you say, for example, you prepare something for a meal, right? You're not going to be preparing 10 dishes to present to them You know, giving them 10 options for every meal. So, say you prepare something that the whole family wants to sit down and eat, but the kid doesn't want to eat that. Do you just wait for them to be more hungry when they will eat it? Or do you give them an alternative at that point in time? Because it can be challenging. So, how would you tackle that kind of a situation?
2: I recommend that parents always have at least one food in the meal that that child or that can eat comfortably and confidently. So often it's the starch, like each culture has their own starch, rice, tortilla, bread, pasta. It might not be the starch. Maybe your child always feels comfortable with the protein, but at least one thing on the plate that they can fill up on if their hunger is there and that you know that they will eat. The rest of the meal can be, of course, you want to aim for a balanced meal, but It can be things that the rest of the family enjoys. Again, it has to be enjoyable, especially the person that's doing all the preparation, you know, meal planning, prep, cleanup. Shopping is a lot of work. So making that meal enjoyable to the rest of the family is important. Spreading out meals. So there's there's a very distinct interval between say snack and meal can help build up appetite so that when your child does sit down, if the foods aren't their favorite they'll be more inclined to still eat some if there's some hunger there. If a child is eating right before a meal and then they come to the table, they're going to be less inclined to try something new or to eat something that's not their favorite, if that makes sense. So we want to make sure they're coming to the table with some appetite. And also, again, just always having at least one thing there that they enjoy to eat. I also recommend rotating meals. So if you have multiple children, Or, you know, one or two parents, sometimes we're going to eat what mom's favorite is. Sometimes we're going to eat dad's. Sometimes we're going to eat our sibling's favorite. And sometimes we'll eat your favorite. But we can't eat your favorite every night just so you eat, right? You need to also make do with what's there when we eat. We call it being considerate without catering. So you're considerate of your child's palate limitations at that point in time in their life. But we're not going to just cater everything to them.
1: That's certainly very helpful to know. I think we're coming towards the end of our episode, Amelia. And, uh, you know, I would definitely love to know what prompted you to start Nourish Her, which is your latest project.
2: Thank you for asking. Yeah, I'm so excited about Nourisher. And Nourisher is Nourish Her. So there's two H's in there, and it's nourisher.com. So I think we actually hinted on it a little through this conversation, but in working with these, I've worked with hundreds of families at Mount Sinai and, and also through my private practice, and very often, When there is challenges with children's eating, I've come to learn that usually the parents are struggling in some way with their own eating. And I have disordered eating past that I've recovered from, but I noticed that when I was starting to feed my children and they were having my girls and having a little more autonomy over their eating, it was triggering to me. It was challenging, just like this conversation is right now. And so I created Nourisher to really support People or parents are in that kind of in-between position where they are trying to set a healthy example for their child, but it's really challenging them with their own eating. So Nourisher is here to support moms in particular who have history of chronic dieting or disordered eating or just really feeling really stressed out about their children's eating and their children's weight changes that could be triggering for parents as well. So Nourisher is here to support moms in, in those positions to help them raise children who have very happy, healthy relationships with foods themselves.
1: That's certainly very important. And that's definitely much needed, you know, in this day and age. But how can people find you if they want to work with you?
2: You can find me via my private practice, which is just sherry.com And also at you can find out more about Nourisher if you're interested in group programs or workshops or just reading more about say the division responsibility that I was talking about that's nourishher.com. so it's nourish and then dot com. thank you for asking
1: now I'm definitely going to leave the link for your website and for nourisher in my show notes so my listeners can contact you from there well, thank you so much, Amelia, for joining me for shedding light on this you know very important topic and all the wonderful information that you provided. I have certainly learned something new today, <laughs> and I'm sure my listeners will love this episode. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'll see you all next time.
2: Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to the Decoding Obesity podcast. Please remember, the information in this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the host and his guests and do not constitute medical advice. Views and opinions on this show do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. And that brings us to the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening in. Don't forget to visit our website, www.decodingobesity.com, for show notes and more info. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.